You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It's Tuesday the 9th of August, my final day here for the moment in Saratoga before I return home. Very enjoyable weekend, the Whitney Stakes on Saturday and then the Facing Tipton Sale last night. And you'd be forgiven if you were in this bubble for thinking that everything was in good health in the sport of horse racing as a, a, a usual extremely lively session was undertaken last night here in Saratoga Springs with a colt by Uncle Mo topping the sale for $1.5 million. 69 yearlings sold. The average was over 400000 The median was $350,000. But we all know in this economic climate, that is just a snapshot of the industry and not necessarily an accurate representation of it all round. And we saw that to pretty significant effect yesterday in the UK with the news of the retirement of Group 1 winning trainer Harry Dunlop, who is only in his mid-40s and is bringing his career to what some would perceive to be a premature end because the economics of it just don't really work. I spoke to Harry Dunlop a little bit earlier on and this is what he had to say as to why he was drawing his career and broadly a successful career to a conclusion. Well, Nick, to be honest with you, I think um, yeah, it is, a, as I say, I always compare it to running a hotel. If the hotel isn't full, it, it's very hard to make any money. And in all honesty, um, I just don't have the number of horses to make the economics work. Um, we've had some wonderful years, um, but COVID was tough. Um, and I lost quite a few horses sort of through that. And it's been really hard to replace them, really. Um, but also as a personal point of view, I'm I'm very keen to sort of go out there and find a new a new job or a new career so i just felt training is such a tough game at the moment it's wanting to do something different as well it's quite interesting that do you think from from your own experience having having decided to to take this um this next step in your in your life in your career that that people probably hang on when they they oughtn't to be really when it's actually better to 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 think of, of doing something else yeah most definitely um, I think we've seen it, sadly, of people who are very famous, um, uh, unfortunately, um, do keep going. And then I think we, there is rather a lot of death and rather a lot of horribleness at the end, um, which, which is, could be avoidable, I think, because, you know, as you know, it's, it's, it's a tough industry. This Everybody derives a good horse to keep you at the top. And, and we've seen some very big trainers who, sadly, have, have fallen from having trained ARC winners to bloody derby winners to you know what um and as you say it's if it's not quite there i think it is something that people should, should consider it's interesting isn't it because people perhaps don't look at it as a as a job they look at it as a as a lifestyle or, or something they, they have to do have to do forever and i think that's an old-fashioned thing i think think like people have changed now my parents generation my father would never have retired until he had to retire um i think people now in life I think I think COVID has changed maybe people's perceptions as well that there is more to, to to life and you know as you say if things aren't quite going right in sort of training 
I think you need to step away. But of course, if you own your own stable and things, it's it's very difficult to step away. Or also you have sort of debt and various things. Of course, you, it's difficult, but very much so. I, I absolutely agree with that. Do you have any regrets or not? Uh, not really. No, of course. It's when you have a nice winner, as we did on Saturday in the Sugar Cup. Of course, it's a regret. You think, oh, maybe not. But no, I'm very much focused to getting out there and, and trying to find something new and perhaps helping some other people. And no, no, I'm very excited by it. So what are you going to do? <laughs> I don't quite know yet. I can't say yet. But no, I'm hoping to sort of help a fellow trainer. And I'm similarly interested to sort of maybe manage some horses buying and selling them. Um, but this is all very much early, early days. And I'm still wanting to finish off, obviously, the season with my own horses. So I can't say too much at this stage. It's quite interesting, that, isn't it? You saying help a fellow trainer. And obviously, I don't want to push you if you can't, if you can't commit. But do you think this is a sign of things to come? Obviously, a, a tougher economic climate, people maybe pooling resources a little bit more and just being a, boxing a little more cleverly. I think it's definitely right. I mean, I think, look at, I mean, I hope I maybe I mustn't speak out of turn, but you look at um, Chris Grassick and, and, and Willie Muir. Um, Chris Grassick has come from, from obviously being an assistant in various things where Willie's been training for many, many years. And what a wonderful, wonderful um, combination it's become. Um, and I think most definitely, I think, let's look at Australia. I mean, is it, um, I forget his name, forgive me, is it James Eustace's son? Yeah, Dave, um, Dave Eustace, Eustace and, and Kieran. Oh, yeah. He was training hundreds of horses, and they're in partnership together. He's not very old. Um, and what a fantastic career he's clearly carving out. And I think you're absolutely right, yes. I think it's sort of the way they do it in Australia, people coming together. Uh, I'm sure can only be a benefit to, to sort of pool resources, yeah. Where where do you feel the pinch most at the moment? What's the most difficult part of, of maintaining a, a career as a trainer? Well, I think, I mean, it's obviously a very labour-intensive industry. You have to obviously um, employ an awful lot of people, uh, and I think that's a, that is a big hit um, for everybody. I mean, staff are, are, are difficult to find it within our industry, but that's a, that's another question. Um, but I think, as any business, finding you know paying good staff is 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 expensive, and and of course, you know, say if you're a computer programmer, you might have one person working for you. You know, we've got to have ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty. We see some of these big stables, many, many more, uh, and I think that is a is 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 tough on everyone. You, you've always been very resourceful as a trainer and, and one key plank of your business was, was racing in France and you spoke about that a little bit yesterday and you said that, that Brexit had ad- adversely affected you quite significantly. Just just explain that for me. Well, I think with Brexit, I mean, well, firstly, firstly, um, COVID, I think, was definitely a, a sort of shocker for us in that we, we struggled to get to France with obviously all the rules and various things. Um, and things became more expensive. But with Brexit, very much so, everything is just generally much more expensive. Um, and I think you, you know, it's, it's hard to justify to go for a, a little conditions race or something. Of course it is for a group race, but you've, you've got to go there and you've got to win it. Win it or be placed to really actually pay your bill. Where, whereas before, it was just a little bit cheaper. It's like sort of going on a, you know, a, long, a long journey in, in England. But now with all the other rules and things, it is just generally more expensive. Is there a part of you that feels quite relieved that you've been courageous enough to take this decision and, and it's a bit of a weight off your shoulders? Um, yeah, I think it is. It's certainly a weight off my shoulders. It's it's certainly not a thing I've done overnight. I've been thinking about it for, for, for some time and, 
uh, and of course it's daunting um, for something I've and obviously racing is in my family and and obviously my brother trains and my fa- my father trained for for many years. It's what we've known to then suddenly sort of come out of it is 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 daunting, absolutely. But I think it is a relief, yes. So once you've taken the decision, you think, well, thank God, and no one's judging me. <laughs> well, it's nice to read that somebody said I was successful. I'm pleased to read that anyway. <laughs> uh, so yes, absolutely. Well, RTE and racing TV broadcaster Jane Mangan was was listening to that. Jane, what do you make of Harry Dunlop's decision, and what do you think it tells us about the the difficulty of training horses in in 2022? Well, nobody's under any illusion that training racehorses is difficult. I think uh, what people don't really realise is the most difficult part of training racehorses is often all the surplus things around the actual structure of your business. Uh, listening to Harry, quite frankly, I thought he sounded like a, a relieved man or a man very content in his decision. Uh, When I read his statement that he tweeted last night, he said, it is something that I've thought about for the last few years. My main concern, uh, my main reason is that it's hard to keep a business thriving in the current economic climate. He talked about when you don't have a huge string of horses to cover rising costs of staff, transport, feed bedding, it's just not viable. What I really took from it was he said, thankfully my business is in good shape and I thought this was a good time to make this decision. That is so important a lot of people when they come when trainers in particular i see it it's as if when you get the trainer's license you have to die with the trainer's license but you cannot hand it in or retire um, or have a quality of life after uh your glory days of training and um it doesn't the entire world evolves training is not immune to that our industry is not immune to that things that were relevant 20 30 years ago are no longer relevant now and i'm i'm pleased to see somebody who obviously saw something coming that it wasn't working for him and he gets out when his business is still in good shape and i see a lot of people and i'm not the only person who sees this people who hold on and hold on and hold on and they find themselves in a position where they can't get out because they're not in a financial position to get out. And you're not only the the pressure of your own livelihood, but the pressure of people you employ and their livelihoods. And that's a serious burden to bear. So outside of the actual results of training winners, and we all know that the currency of competition is winning, Um, outside of the obvious statistics that we can look up on a trainer's championship board, there's so much more to it. So I'm pleased for Harry that he is content in his decision. And I would expect with inflation and all the rising costs, the staff crisis that is across Britain and Ireland, and I think probably across the world, things are getting more difficult. People are having to adapt and we will see more of this. It's not a surprise. It's interesting, isn't it, how hard it is to kick on even if you've had group-level success as a trainer. And it struck me when I was looking at the the top trainers in the UK, particularly the other day, how slightly it's a it's a case of, of dead man's shoes. You, you really just hang on and hang on and hang on and hang on. And, and you're looking at trainers who are in their late 50s, early 60s, being mm. talked of as being on the up. When, when you think, well, really, they should have been in that position 25 years ago. It's a it's a strange life, isn't it? It's not quite like any other profession. No, and to be honest, and I, I know it myself from people um, close to home, friends and family, it's an addiction in that we're all looking for the next big horse. And if you have a, had a big horse uh, in yesteryear, your, your belief is that you could find that next horse. You just need to keep 
going through the motions on and hoping that you do but ultimately there comes a time where basically the reality today is that one horse will not sustain you I remember having a conversation with somebody close to home who had been through all of this and um, he said no longer is it sustainable to have one good horse because you need three or four to compete uh, with the level of competition and the standard of competition that is around now he didn't mean you need three or four big winners he said one good horse is no longer an option because sustainable or financial sustenance you can't you can't basically structure your entire business on the back of one horse that is just no longer an option we saw joe chute decide to hand in his license last week now harry dunlop both capable trainers who've had success at or near the the, the highest level and both training in or near uh, one of the the major training centers in 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 the uk where recruiting staff should be more straightforward than it is outside of that do you think this is going to presage a, a flood of people handing in their licenses uh, i i think it's happening quietly for a very long time just bigger more you know, high profile names will get more headlines. I was at the time, I was a little bit surprised when Charlie Swan and Joanna Morgan and a number of trainers over here decided to do that. But no longer am I surprised when I hear this. I, I see in Ireland a lot of trainers uh, leasing out maybe half their yard because their string is reduced so much and it helps. Obviously, the, the rent will, you know, ease a burden of a financial burden. Um, I look at, you know, quick glance at the Irish uh, flat championship table. You six trainers in the in Ireland. Six trainers have trained twenty wins, not twenty winners, twenty wins. So that's only six trainers in Ireland who've won twenty races this season. Uh, fourteen, only fourteen have trained ten or more. So that um, that just puts into context the flat scene, and I would consider the flat scene actually more diverse than the national hunt scene over here, where we have three or four dominant superpowers, two at the very, very top of the table. But uh, this is this is the nature of the game. Competition is fierce and people are having to adapt to compete. And that you, we're seeing bigger yards. Um, a lot of people are saying, should we limit the number of horses in training in any one yard? Don't, I don't terribly agree with that. I think you just have to be good at what you do. And, and basically when the competition gets tough, you get going. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that I think has been happening over time. We'll get more common, but I think we will adapt or uh, there will be a culture shift in the next decade, decade or so when it becomes okay to retire, that it's no longer a shock when a trainer retires. Um, because up until now, it's almost seen as a failure if you retire, which we know is not the case. Every career has a lifespan. Why is training any different? I mean, I suppose one day we'll have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that Aidan O'Brien isn't training racehorses anymore, but I don't suppose that day's coming anytime, anytime soon. He He's off the back of his 17th victory in the Group 1 Phoenix Stakes. We spoke about it yesterday with Little Big Bear. Now, there have been some numbers to give his performance a bit of context, Jane. What have time form made of it? Time form were very impressed. They've given him a rating of 126p, 126p. To put that into context, Brad Zell is the next highest rated two-year-old, 
on 114p. So he absolutely blew him out of the water. We know Bradzell came back with an injury, a season-ending injury, and hopefully he'll be back next season. But that's just the numbers from um, from time form. The the next, uh, the third highest rated two-year-old, there's three of them sharing that, dramatised, who we will hopefully see at York in the Lowther. She's on 110p along with Naval Power and Noble Style. But there was a lot of people questioning whether Little Big Bear would push the Pinatubo rating. He had an official rating of 128 after his national stakes demolition. Well, we might see Little Big Bear pressure the 128 mark because it now seems that he will line up at Champions Weekend in that very race. You've seen enough good horses. You've seen enough good two-year-olds. You've you've had close working relationship with the with the owners of this horse. Do you think that's the right step for him going up to seven furlongs now? I do think it's the most... Uh, with regard to the guineas next year it will give us the best indication we know that his dam has won over 10 furlongs but I can't get myself away from the fact that 10 sovereigns and alcohol free both brilliant at 6 furlongs go up to a mile in their respective group 1 races and get beaten so this guy looks like he could have this explosive natural brilliance that while he's Ballydoyle have had good good horses uh, they haven't had maybe a see the stars Frankel type of you know superstar, and I wonder could this guy be the the modern great from that stable? He's got I think he's got it all. I was in love with him from a very early stage. Uh, he's got this uh, temperament that a two year old rarely has. That they're just so concrete, mentally solid. And then when Ryan asks him, hands and heels, asks him, doesn't have to go completely. Uh, to the to the well completely, and and he extends away from what we thought was a very deep field. So he's got he's got an aura of of brilliance about him, and I'm I'm pleased to see him run in the national stakes because you know Nick, I'll be there to see him. Of course you will. You're everywhere, Jane. Uh, the the big race this weekend in Deauville is the Prix Jacques Le Marois, and it features some really terrific horses. Maljum, who was very unlucky in the St James's Palace Stakes, State of Rest dropping back to a mile as well. Uh, this this looks a, a pretty a pretty good race. It's just a shame that one or two of these aren't aren't going for the Judmont International, I suppose. And and we're again rather uh, keeping some of the group one stars apart. Yeah, it's uh, somewhat of a sidestep from the Judmont for a few of these horses. Uh, we you mentioned State of Rest. Hopefully we'll see Maljun. We haven't seen him since he was at Unlucky Fourth in the St. James's Palace. It looks like Charlie Appleby will split his three roles again. Hopefully we'll see Native Trail at York and Caribus or maybe Modern Games will run in the Marois. Uh, Prosperous Voyage, Bayside Boy, they have other options as well, but they're also in in France. It's notable that of the 17 horses left in the Marois, only three of them represent their home country. And that comes back to um, a topic we've already touched on. And after uh, last week's uh, Primaris de Geese, it has now gone 12 Group 1s in France. Still only three of them won by the home team. Nine, nine of them have gone for export, and it looks like the Marois will make that 10. Now, Jane, perhaps the last word for the moment on the issue surrounding horses from abroad not being able to run in the lower-grade handicap races in Great Britain. and That was announced by the BHA last week. You've had quite strong views on this. Lee Mosseshead pointed out in his column earlier in the week in the Racing Post that there was an element of reciprocity here because you weren't allowed to take a British horse to run in a low-grade flat handicap in Ireland. 
Now, you've been in touch with the, the Irish handicapper. What's he had to say? Yeah, so um, just to point out, this came out last Friday. Uh, Richard Wayman, the CEO of the BHA, uh, outlined that they felt the BHA did not need to ask the racing group to revisit the matter. I have often been critical of the BHA not being decisive, so I'm very... You know, I have to give them credit for not asking another group to make a decision for them. Um, they cited field sizes. They did research. They produced produce data on field sizes. Uh, they cited handicapping and uh, the growth in number of low-grade horses. Okay, well, there's always been a surplus of low-grade horses. That's a natural um, uh, that goes with the territory. Uh, as regards handicapping, I did contact the Irish handicapper who, to be fair, uh, Lee said yesterday he, he uh, included the rule 66 of the IHRB rules of racing, which states a horse out trained outside of Ireland with a flat handicap mark of less than 60 uh, from a turf authority cannot or will not be qualified to run in an Irish flat handicap. So that's 60 on the flat. There is no such restriction over jumps. Uh, you have three runs in the UK, even if you don't have a, flat, uh, a national hunt mark. In the UK, you will uh, be assessed by the National Hunt Handicapper here in Ireland. Um, as regards the flat handicap, if you are rated 60 or less, uh, you must run in a conditions or a maiden first so that the Irish hand handicapper can assess you himself. That rule ob obviously uh, doesn't preclude you from running after you run in a maiden over here. And I know a lot of people will think they'll never run in a maiden over here, but it's still a mediation. It doesn't completely... Um, preclude you from running in those races what i would say is as regards field sizes they said that there is a competitive average field size well that's blatantly wrong because over the summer you don't have uh, we're seeing four five six runners in the next two days chelmsford have a six runner or sorry a four runner class six nottingham have a, a six runner class five Tomorrow, Yarmouth have five runners in class fives. Beverly have four runners in a class five. Foss last has uh, two class fives or class five and class six with six runners each. Like it, that is not competitive racing. When I said that they are promoting mediocrity, yes, it's all relative to your rating band. If you're a low graded horse, you should still be making that the most competitive of that rating band as the steps up the ladder should be as competitive as they can possibly be. This isn't a rant. This is just what I believe in. And I know everybody has had their comments on Twitter and I've read them. And uh, some people are suggesting, why don't the Irish system add more races to facilitate the population of horses in that rating bracket in this country? That to me is a race to the bottom. We don't want to add more races because that's a race to the bottom. You guys have the races. They've always been there. We've always ran in them. And while the BHA have cited a disproportionate number of successes from Irish horses, is that our issue? I, I'm not convinced well, that it is. The, the only thing I, I, would... I spoke to the handicapper over here who said that between it's it's an average of seven and ten pounds we go up when we go to the UK, and nobody I don't think complains about that because they still run. If they complained, they wouldn't run. Um, and to be honest, if you have the races over there and they're not filling, what is the negative to but, us running in them? But Jane, doesn't it behove your authorities to provide the races that cater for the pretty significant horse population that your breeders are encouraged to produce you know ireland produces an enormous amount of horses yes it does um we have just to my mindset i think we have enough racing if we add on more racing to facilitate the bottom end that is a race to the bottom 
we have had this conversation with the context of British racing before that there's uh, a lot of racing in the UK. I'm just saying that you have a lot of racing that is not filling. The races are there. Should we add on more races here to facilitate the horses? I actually can see the horses leaving Ireland. If this rule stays in place, I can see these horses leaving Ireland and we could have more Harry Dunlops on, on the podcast. Um, so I, I, I'm not in favour of adding on more races over here to facilitate the bottom end because that's a race to the bottom. We have balloting, we have competitive races that fill with three reserves, particularly at this end. Um, and it just frustrates me to see these races with fractional number of runners that we could, you know, make more competitive and make races more interesting in the UK. You might remember earlier in the year, we spoke of record-breaking former uh, French apprentice champion, Michael Michel, moving her tack to the United States, to Kentucky, to continue her career, having had a successful spell riding 30 winners in, in Japan. Uh, Michael rode her first stakes winner at Ellis Park in Kentucky, at the weekend uh, and joins me now. Mikael, how have you found things since moving to the States? Oh, very nice. It's really different than in Europe, but I love to ride on the dirt and I love the US uh, racing style. So um, I really enjoy it. Everybody are nice with me. So I'm just happy. And tell me a little bit about why you, you moved in the first place. Um, my French agent, uh, talked to me about US um, on my first uh, year, Turkey's year. Um, but Japan asked me to go over there, so um, we we don't cancel to come in US, but it was just, we do it later. And so at the beginning of 2022, I had a big accident, so I took a time just to uh, think about my career, what I really want, and I remember this big deal and big dream to come in US. And so it was just, let's go, come on and let's do it. So I come here and I'm really happy. I don't have any regrets. It's just so nice experience. And what was it about racing in America that attracted you? Um, so the turf is not like urban turf. It's really fast turf, um, but I like it. And I love so much to ride on the dirt because I learned it in Japan. And it's not like it's painful, a kickback. No, I like it. I'm I don't care about the kickback. Um, horses are really strong. I rode many two years old, are so strong and so beautiful, not like in Europe. Um, yes, um, it's a new experience for me. I can um, become a better jockey and grow up. And... I can learn more English because my English was not really good. So it's just perfect for my career, I think. And tell me a little bit about why you felt that your career in France wasn't going the way it should have been, given the fact that you were champion apprentice, you broke all the records. Uh, there were people saying that y your career would go along the same lines as Holly Doyle's career, say, in, in the UK. Why do you think that wasn't happening in France? Um, I love so much my country and they give me a big chance to prove that, um, you know, I'm good enough to win so many races. Uh, but the problem is the mind's still um, too tight, you know. They just think a female rider can be good but not good enough to ride big races and become international jockey like Soumillon, Detori or Iradotis. 
we are just yeah good to ride some normal races but not a big one and i want to prove that we can't do it because i saw many female rider did it already in many different countries and now we have a big example at the moment holly doyle she's just super um super um jockey and she do it so well and she won in france but every time it's not enough to prove them that we can do it so yeah i just would like to um, get my chance you know and don't have regrets when i will uh, be retired so that's why i move here and and also i love to so much to ride on the dirt i know um i said it again but i i love the ride like this so I think it's a good experience. I rode already in many different countries all over the world. And for me, it's really important to do it, to can be a good international jockey. And in terms of the lifestyle, Mikhail, you, you're obviously a globetrotter. You, you've been in Japan for a little while as well. Are you adapting quite quite easily? Um, I love so much to travel. When I was young, I said to my mom, I want to travel all over the world. So it's just perfect deal because I do it with my job. Um, in US, um, the people are really, they were really welcome to me, you know, very nice, very gentle. You can speak easy with some famous trainer. Um, yeah, every time it's easy, just smile and they, they are nice with you. Um, it's easy. It was not easy to make the paperwork in US, to be honest with you. <laughs> I got some problem at the first month, but, um, Every time it's a new goal for me, uh, I want to prove me. I'm just 27, but I can travel all over the world. And every time I'm strong and better and better every day. So um, my mom told me I'm crazy to do it, <laughs> but it's so nice. You know, you, you are strong and yes, yes. I can't really explain you in English. My English is not enough uh, good, but I think it's just perfect to grow up to travel like this. Mikhail, wishing you all the very best. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Uh, Mikhail Michelle, who's clearly um, hungry to make an impression in the US, and by the sounds of it, she's going to do so as well. She's earned plaudits from top trainers like Graham Motion. She's being looked after by by Jane Buchanan who's got an enormous amount of experience i think she's going to make it and, and make it make it in pretty good style here at jane mangan it's it's quite depressing to hear what she had to say about france though that they just you know culturally haven't shifted to the point where they could conceive of a record breaking apprentice riding in big races it's 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 most disappointing I, like, who who better to comment on this than her and who 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 to contrast any opinion when they haven't lived it like she has she is so talented she i've i've been an admirer of her from from the day she was an apprentice she's so tactically brilliant tight she's got all of the attributes that would make her a, a top flight um a top tier jockey um and it's it's really disappointing to hear that now i will say a lot of a lot of us say you know female writers get the uh, opportunities and, and they will, they will um, take their opportunities. But it's one thing getting an opportunity in a conditions race, a maiden, a handicap, 
that next step to get to group level to pattern level to top tier that is the step that we really need to ask ourselves if James Doyle or William Buick or Frankie Dettori is available are you still going to stay loyal to your to your female jockey and that's what Holly Doyle has done in spades and that's what Rachel Blackmore with a top tier job in national hunt racing has done but that is what Archie Watson and Henry de Bromhead have done they have been open-minded and they have given these horses um to these riders to to, to prove themselves on so uh it's most it's most disappointing that that Mikhail feels that that still exists and who who is to disagree with her she's lived it that's some very sad news coming in from New Zealand uh, the death of the Japanese-born, New Zealand-based rider Taiki Yanagida, known to all his friends as Tiger and a very popular figure. He's died six days after a, a race fall. I'm joined by uh, sports journalist and broadcaster Michael Guerin, the racing editor of the New Zealand Herald. He also hosts the racing TV show uh, Way In. Uh, Michael, uh, news that I'm, I, I've no doubt has rocked the, the racing community in, in New Zealand. Tell me a little more. We are not a big industry, and there's probably only 100 professional jockeys in New Zealand. And Taiki is one of those senior jockeys. He lives in the North Island of New Zealand in Waikato, which is a very strong racing region. So he's a very well-known jockey. Very popular. He had a race fall on the synthetic track at Cambridge last week. Um, he fell, the horse partially rolled on him, and he was contacted by another horse from behind. He was in an induced coma from that moment. Um, he never regained consciousness. He was on life support, and his mother and one of his sisters flew out from their native Japan to spend time with him from Friday. And then his life support was turned off uh, on Tuesday afternoon. So huge effects for the New Zealand and Japanese industry. Tiger had a lot of friends uh, in Australia where he also rode for a very short time. And as I said, it'll really hit hard to a small industry like New Zealand. We know the death of any jockey or racing industry participant, Nick, is a tragedy. But particularly in the size of a place like New Zealand, we haven't had a jockey die here for the last six years. We haven't had a jockey die in the northern part of the North Island, which is the most racing-centric part of New Zealand, for a very long time. In fact, as long as I've been doing this, which is about 30 years' time. So um, our condolences go to his mother, to his sisters, his grandmother back in Japan. And when people in New Zealand wake up and digest this information at the start of our racing season tomorrow, Nick, because the racing season starts here on August the 1st, um, it's going to take a long time for people to get over so a sad day for the New Zealand, Australian and Japanese racing industries. Sports journalist Michael Guerin there with very sad news from New Zealand. Well, if you're deep in the bloodstock world, there's probably no more enjoyable time of the year than this because here I am in the sales complex in the middle of Saratoga at Facing Tipton ahead of what in terms of an event is certainly one of the marquee sales of the year as a, as a social event as well as a transaction of extremely high quality bloodstock and then the the roadshow moves on um, as many of the of the great and the good from here jet set across the atlantic to deauville to arcana to their great uh, early autumn late summer early autumn uh, yearling sale freddie powell's the executive director of arcana and, and joins me here at, at saratoga there aren't there aren't too many better doubles to do than that, are there, Freddie? Straight from Saratoga to Dover. Yes, 
it, it takes quite a lot of energy, but it's uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, it's you know they're very similar in a way because it's a social event as well as being a proper business uh, um, activity as well. So it's um, but it yeah it's just compulsory fun and it's uh, <laughs> it, it's great uh, to be uh, able to do both compulsory fun and a very serious business for you in your role how difficult is it to marry those two things actually it's quite easy because <laughs> because i like it and you know and i and i do it the way i would like people to do it for me if i was a client so um and we've got a great team as well at home in Deauville to uh, get everything organized hotels you know act, you know just social events the cocktails and everything everything is organized in long way in advance so it's a uh, pretty relaxed being here really so you you fly through 60 odd people from from Saratoga to, to Deauville at Arcana's expense yes 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 we um, we chartered a plane uh, we've done that last year for the first time because obviously covid restrictions and everything we we just wanted to give comfort to people to, to be for them to be able to travel to France in a very relaxed way and it worked quite well and lots of people last year say ah oh, sorry with covid i don't really want to go to europe at the, at the minute and but next year I'll, I'll do it so we've done it again and i, remi- I remind those people they told me that <laughs> covid's cost you an absolute fortune here you've set a very dangerous precedent yes no i agree but you know you know I think for a sales company, for a business, business-wide, uh, kerosene is a good investment. When we get people there on the spot, they, um, you know, they're not there for the champagne. They're there for the horses as well. So you know, we um, we can do a significant business out of it. So that's great. Just dial it back for me to the very origins of, a, of Arcana and, and when a sales house first was originated in in, in Deauville. So. Uh, French breeders have been selling yearlings in Deauville in the summer since 1887. Really? Yes. So it's a, so it goes back a long way. And they had different um, names for the sales, uh, including Tattersalls at some point in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, there was called the Tattersalls Francais or something like that. And the, um, in the 60s, the Agence Française du Pursan got it really international and... and um, in 2006, uh, when Goffs France and the Agence Française merged um, to create Arcana under the energy impulsion of um, the Aga Khan, uh, we, um, we uh, wanted to get it even more international. And, you know, a lot of people in France realized how um, effective and how good the, the breeding operation was the pedigrees everything and we needed it to a new tool to um, to extend it um, to extend the business and uh, make it known all around the world and that that's the reason why Arcana has been created uh, uh, now 15 years ago and as far as the European yearling sales are concerned you get in first as regards the the prime bloodstock you're smiling is that an advantage do you think um, yes and no. Uh, there is an advantage about it because it's in the summer. We've got some people coming in Deauville in August that can't attend sales 
us anywhere else because so you've uh, got a bit of a vibe around it yes exactly yeah. we've got like lots of owner breeders that are never attending any other sales in the year so it's great to uh, to be there but there's also a little bit of a wait and see feeling like oh let's see how the market is before we spend money and everything so you know sometimes it's an advantage sometimes not an advantage and especially like so far as soon as there's been an economic crisis they start in september or october those crises so in august you know people are on holidays they're spending them buying horses not really thinking of what's going on in the real world so um, it's been an advantage most of the time yes it's interesting to, to hear how that might just play on people's psychology being buying before the serious business of the of the term time begins again if you if you like what characterizes an arcana yearling do you think what type of horse needs to be in in Deauville? well the, the sale is early and Obviously, yearlings, they are, they were born last uh, spring. So when we do the selection, which is in Mar- uh, April and May, uh, most of them are just turned one. So they need to be mature, you know, because they obviously they need to get out of the fields uh, the first week of June to start their prep. And that's, you know, that's early. And in June, you still have quite a lot of uh, grass in the paddocks and everything. So... If, if they're born quite late and late developing, you, they probably need to stay uh, a little bit longer in the paddock. So that's why we have two big sales. We have one in August and one in October because the horses that need the time, we need to be able to give them the time. But the, um, you know, what works in, uh, in August as well is uh, obviously um, anything that is um, uh, first season sires, they work really well in August because usually stallion masters they want you know at the first yearling sales to um, to have good representation of their stallion so that that works really well because they they make sure they have some nice ones to sh- on show for the august sale and um, and i think we do this year between Tudan hot and valgeist and a few others we we do have some very very nice looking yearlings by first season sires and is there is there a star lot if you open the catalog people would immediately raise their eyebrows at? Uh, a star, you, you know, obviously I can't... You don't know yet, but... <laughs> I don't know yet, and I've seen many many horses, but uh, I c- it's difficult for me to pick one. But uh, but what's interesting is the um, most of the horses with, with the very big pedigrees are, you know, they, they fulfill expectation on physical as well. Like, we, we've got a lovely um, brother to Wings of Eagles, sister to Nashua, uh, brother to Trev, brother to Sotsas and sister Charlie, the, the sister to um, Native Trail is really good as well by Sayuni. So you know it's a, uh, it's lots of quality. You know it's a lot of okay, we've got 17 uh, siblings to Group One winners, but it's not only about the numbers of Group One winners. It's the quality of the Group One winners they are siblings to. It's quite amazing. Any space on the plane? Uh, no, I'm sure we can make any we we can make room for for the adequate person, no problem. But uh, at the minute, we are full capacity on the plane. Freddie, thanks so much. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. Freddie Powell, there, executive director of Arcana, and that interview brought to you in conjunction with our good friends at Weatherby's and their Global Stallion app, their excellent stallion book as part of our series going around the bloodstock world. Well, thanks to Freddie, all my guests today. Jane Mangan's still here and has a tip for you for today. 
Yes, we're going to Lingfield to the 2.30. It's Al Egla to beat the winner at the top. This is a novice race and this really doesn't have a winner's penalty for James Doyle and the Christopher family. I think Al Egla can win at the 2.30 at Lingfield. Jane, thank you so much. That was Tuesday, August the 9th. We'll be back with you tomorrow and I will be back in the UK later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.